just before we come to look at God's Word together this evening, I'm, I'm noticing in the bulletin, we promised that it would be Genesis chapter 46 to 48. And even before I start, I want to tell you that we're not going to cover all of that ground tonight. And I'm just getting that in early so that I don't have a queue of people at the door complaining that the sermon was too short and you've been shortchanged. It happens all the time. Um, no, we will cover chapters 46 and 47 tonight of Genesis. Uh, we'll pick up 48 some other time. I've been reading in my own devotions recently through Psalm 119, and if you know it at all, you'll know that it's the longest of our Psalms. It's a long exploration of all the glory of God's Word, so some wonderful imagery there for those of us who come to to hear God's Word together. Uh, I'll just use a couple of lines from that Psalm as a prayer as we invite God by His Spirit to speak to us. Let's pray. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words in my mouth. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Father God, we thank you for these truths that in so many ways and already in our experience at so many different times, your word has has spoken to us. It's been the word of life to us. It's fed us and nourished us. It's challenged us. It's encouraged us. Lord, we pray that this evening, just now, would be one of those moments where you speak once more to us. Help us to play our part in the listening and the receiving of what you give us just now. Amen. I recently heard about a policy that the RAF apply to young pilots in their training. After a particular number of hours of training, any candidate who isn't ready to fly an aircraft solo is dropped from the program. They fail to meet the cut, uh, and in effect, they're branded a, a failure and, and are discarded. Isn't it a relief this evening to know that God doesn't operate by the same RAF policy? Uh, time and time again in God's Word, uh, and with many different uh, individuals along the way, we're reassured of God's infinite patience with us when we fail. God seems to take great pleasure in rehabilitating failures. And I think that's certainly a lesson that comes out in in these last years of Jacob's life, Joseph's father. Let's remind ourselves quickly of what's been happening in his life these last years. The last time that Jacob was actually on stage, if you like, in the Genesis narrative, was in chapter 37. At the end of that chapter, his sons have lied to him. They've told him that his favorite son, Joseph, is dead. And we find Jacob saying, in mourning, I'll go down to the grave. As far as he's concerned, his life is no longer worth living. 
His son is dead, and he may as well be dead too. In mourning, I'll go down to the grave. By the time we get to the end of chapter 45, we're being prepared for Jacob's reintroduction into the story. His sons tell him that Joseph is still alive, and we learn there that Jacob was stunned. He didn't believe them. And who could blame them? You know, we hear stories from time to time of of parents who have given up a child for adoption, and then 20 years later, they they have the opportunity to meet that child. Well, well, for Jacob, it was a more a more terminal situation than that. He thought his son was dead, and all of a sudden, he's being told that his son is alive. We read there that the spirit, and it's a wonderful wording in the in the biblical text, the spirit of Jacob revived. He came back to life. This old man who thought his life was over, who thought he was as good as dead, suddenly he's coming back to life. My son Joseph is alive. I'll go to see him before I die. So it's a brilliant, just a brilliant moment in this old man's life. We thought last week, and and maybe you remember some of what we we dwelt on, we thought about the the incredible transformation in the life of, of Joseph's brothers. Now this evening we're going to see a wonderful transforming experience in the life of his father, Jacob. We join Jacob as he sets out in a long journey across the Sinai desert. Desert. He's heading for Egypt. And this journey is going to be a slow one. Much, much slower than, than Joseph's journey all those years ago when he was shackled to an Ishmaelite trader's camel. It's going to be much slower than the journey of the brothers in recent years when they had gone up and down to Egypt to pick up grain. You see, this time the whole family is going, all 66 of them, everything, including the kitchen sink. This journey is going to be slow. And in the opening verses of chapter 46, we get a behind-the-scenes glimpse of one particular evening on the journey. It's late. Jacob's entire extended family have gone to sleep. And old Jacob is offering sacrifices to his God. He's a lot on his mind. And and truth be told, he's afraid. Jacob's lived most of his life afraid. He was afraid, you'll remember, that his brother Esau was going to kill him after he robbed him of his birthright. He was afraid of Laban, his father-in-law, constantly wary that this man was trying to rip him off. He was afraid 20 years later still, when he returned home, afraid that his brother Esau would, even at that point, take revenge on him. He was afraid of what his neighbors would do to him after his sons killed all the inhabitants of Shechem. Jacob lived most of his life afraid. But this evening it's different. His fear is different. There's one thing and only one thing that he fears just now, and it's a very, very different thing. He fears God. He fears on this night doing something that would displease God by stepping out of God's will. Let me explain how I came to that conclusion. 
Jacob is at Beersheba, the, the most southerly town in Canaan at the time. He's on the southern border. It's the last stop before leaving the promised land. And all his life, he's believed that God's promise to him through his fathers is tied up with Canaan. And here he is about to step across the border to go and see his long lost son in Egypt. He remembers the terrible things that had happened when his grandfather Abram made a a journey from Canaan to Egypt, how, how it nearly cost him his life and the life of his wife, Sarah. He remembers how his father Jacob did so, or sorry, his father Isaac had done so too with a similar outcome. So Jacob doesn't want to follow in their disobedient footsteps. And although he's desperate to go and see Joseph, he's afraid of disobeying God. Have we got that? Do we have the fear of the Lord that Jacob displays here? There's a wonderful strand of teaching in the Bible about the fear of the Lord, and sometime I'll maybe get the chance to to delve into that a little bit with you. The biblical fear of the Lord isn't, I don't think, the fear of of the person of God. God teaches us to, to love him, to come to him as children to a father. The fear of the Lord's a different thing, and I think we see a wonderful illustration of it here. The fear of the Lord's a kind of a love for him. It's a depth of devotion to God that says that that we're afraid to do anything that would displease God. We want so much to live for his glory. We want so much to honor him that we fear doing anything that would bring his name into disrepute. Friends, sometimes, just occasionally, as I lead here in the church, something happens to me and I I, I get this real sense that I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to let God down. Would you pray for me that I get that feeling much more often than I do? That the fear of the Lord would govern every step that I take as I try to give leadership in this church. Would you pray that for our elders and our leadership here? That our one burning passion would be to do the things that God calls us to. And that we would be, that we would be yes, nearly afraid of doing the wrong thing. Of going down a blind alley. Of taking a wrong turn. Have you got it? Have you got the fear of the Lord? Jacob had it. And that's why he's up alone in the night at Beersheba. That's why he's offering his sacrifices to God. And that's why I think God comes and meets with him in this beautiful way. Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I'll make you a great nation. Jacob, you're worried about stepping out of my will, about disobeying me. That's great. That's exactly the kind of fear I long to see in my people. Now that I've seen that, don't be afraid.
Go with a heart and a half to Egypt. Go with my blessing. And then God gives Jacob a promise. He says, I will go with you and bring you back again. I don't know if that would connect with you at all there. But if you get the chance, go and look back to the promise God gives to Jacob while he's lying with his head on a rock as a young man at Bethel. It's almost word for word the same promise. God saying, just as I went with you all those decades ago, I'm going to go with you again. I'll go with you. I'll bring you back. Don't be afraid. It's interesting, I think, to notice that Jacob, now that he fears the Lord, doesn't fear anything else very much. And there's a lot that he could fear here. He's an old man going on a a long and a demanding journey, but there's no mention that he's afraid. It's a big thing to move your whole family, 66 people, to an entirely different land with an entirely different culture. But once he knows that it's the fear of the Lord or, or the will of the Lord, there's no sense that he's afraid, no hint of it. All the fears that, that used to crowd in on Jacob, all those things that used to keep him awake at night, they seem to be receding from this old man's life. As far as I can gather, old age is a time when fears often come in, crowd in, dominate. But here's Jacob who's learned to fear the Lord, and there's a sense that the old fears are gone. They're receding from his life. Friends, when we fear the Lord, what else have we to fear? When your hand is in the hand of the one who created this world, who created the moon and the stars and the solar system and the universe. When your hand's in the hand of the one who gave his son for you, what is there to fear? The Bible teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I wonder too if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the end of our other fears. So often as we've read these narratives together, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall. Some of the situations just seem very evocative to me and, and there's one here that, that really grabs my attention. Picture old Jacob arriving in Egypt, his hair's snowy white. He, he's bent over almost double, you know, with the years. His back is curved. And he's shuffling slowly at the head of the the caravan train of his huge family. Jacob arrives in the chariot. He he jumps out without waiting for the vehicle properly to stop. There's not the usual dignity that there's been with Joseph in recent years as the second in command of all Egypt. All of a sudden, he's simply a son before his, his aged dad. He throws his arms around Jacob and he weeps. I, I, I don't know if I can picture this one. I think even allowing my mind to dwell on it. 
There's so much here. Decades of separation, and they're reconciled. Jacob says a wonderful thing. He says, I'm ready to die since I've seen for myself that you're still alive. That's it, son. Now I've seen you. I'm ready to go. In one way, it, it seems a very strange thing for him to meet his son and to say straight off, I'm ready to die. But actually, it's not unusual to hear older men and women of God in particular speaking like this. Dan reminded us of it a few weeks ago uh, when he spoke here. For those who have known the blessings of God, there often comes a point where they're so content with everything that God has given them, when they're so conscious of his complete goodness to them, that they quite simply couldn't ask for more. God's quite literally made their dreams come true. Think for a moment of old Simeon. Do you remember his response when he saw the, the baby Jesus on his mother's arm as she brought him into the temple? He took Jesus into his arms and he said, Sovereign Lord, now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. The old man's dreams had come true. He had met his Savior, the one he'd been waiting for all his life. There was nothing more. Nothing more that God could give him in his life. No greater bliss than this. Once we've met Jesus and truly known him and loved him, there's a very real sense that we don't need anything more. Our dreams too have come true. In the closing verses of chapter 46, Joseph tells his gathered family of his plan to get them well located in Egypt. And it's a really simple plan actually. He's going to tell Pharaoh that his family are shepherds. And because the people in Egypt don't really like having much to do with shepherds, it's not a socially acceptable occupation. Pharaoh is going to be glad to let them settle a part of the, the land on their own. Goshen, in this case. So we read in the early verses of chapter 47 that Joseph's plan worked out. I think that's fireworks outside. I wondered if it was me bumping something, but it's worth taking a moment here to think about why God brings his people from Canaan into Goshen. What's going on here? It seems that God has chosen Egypt to provide an environment for the next stage of the development of his people. You see, it had become obvious that they couldn't develop in the way that God wanted them to while they stayed in Canaan. Think for a moment of some of the stuff that was happening in previous chapters in Genesis. Do you remember Joseph and his, or sorry, Jacob, sorry, too many J's, Judah. Do you remember the oldest brother, Judah, and his loose behavior? Do you remember the compromises that Jacob himself had landed in as he tolerated the loss of control with his family? Do you remember the rape of Dinah? And how two of Jacob's sons went and murdered 
a whole community in Shechem. There was a sense that chaos was beginning to, to have a grip on Jacob's family. And there's a sense here that it was too much for these novices in the faith. So God takes them out of that. God chooses to relocate them to Goshen. And it's a largely vacant borderland of Egypt. It's a place where they could live apart. Uh, apart from the pagan influences of Canaan that they had found so hard to resist. So here in Goshen, and remember, they're going to be in Egypt now for 400 years. That's a long time. God is going to work in the, these descendants of Jacob and form them into a people of his own. He's going to make them into a nation that really can bless the world in his name. I think this relationship of God's earliest people here with the land of Egypt is an early illustration of, of how God's people have always lived since. You see, we're in the world just as they were in Egypt, but we're not to be of the world just as Jacob's family never fully imbibed the Egyptian culture. As followers of Jesus Christ today, we're, we're called to this 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 interesting relationship with the world around us. We're called to be responsible. We're called to be grateful for the community where God has placed us. But we're called not to adopt its values. Not to be shaped by its worldview. We too are a people apart. We too live in Goshen. There's a, a lovely short account here of old Jacob meeting Pharaoh, which I don't want you to miss. It's in chapter 47, verses 7 to 10. Joseph brings his old dad, probably by the arm, leads him before his boss, Pharaoh of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world. And it's lovely, really. It's, there's this natural, spontaneous moment where, where Jacob, he's unawed, by the splendor of Pharaoh and by the strangeness of everything around him. He breaks the silence by blessing Pharaoh. He blesses him on his arrival. He blesses him again as he leaves. And it's quite ironic here, really. A crusty wee shepherd shuffles across the court and blesses the world's superpower. He says, let me bless you, son. It's a significant moment, though. Because here's a sign that Jacob is beginning to understand his God-given identity. He is a carrier of the promise of God. He's one of Abraham's descendants whose role now is to be a blessing to the whole world. This is the most natural thing in the world for Jacob to do, to go and bless the peoples of the world. And he begins here with Pharaoh on his throne in Egypt. Friends, wouldn't it be great if God's people in Ulster got a reputation for being the people who are going to come to you and bless you? Who are going to approach you with their arms open and speak God's goodness to you? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it maybe be in some cases 
a substantial change from the way in which God's people have approached their community in recent times. I think that would be a wonderful thing. It's certainly something that I want to learn to do, to approach people as one ready to bless rather than to judge or to curse. In the second half of chapter 47 here, there's a part that's usually left out in the Sunday school accounts of Joseph because probably for the only time in the biblical narrative, Joseph is portrayed in a bad light. When you read the commentators on these Joseph passages, there's one or two times where there's been a question mark over Joseph, but usually they've agreed that no, his behavior has been commendable, but not this time. We're now into the last years of the seven years of famine. It's a time when the poor of Egypt are terribly vulnerable. And at that time, we discover that Joseph deliberately brings the entire population to their knees. He makes them slaves to Pharaoh. He forces the common people to give up their land and their wealth to the state. He he makes them pledge to give a fifth of any future income as an annual tax. And he puts Pharaoh in a position of absolute power. He creates a huge gulf between the rich and the poor in Egypt. Now, it's hard to know why he did this. But when we read it and take it at face value, it seems that he's acted harshly, that he's acted without pity in the face of human misery. And we can't help but wish that this hadn't happened. We like our heroes to to go through unscathed. We like them to to be ideals for us, but not not Joseph. Uh, he, He too falls here. We wish here that Joseph had been as he was in his younger days, as he was when he was a slave in Potiphar's household or when he was a prisoner, just with a lovely attentiveness to God, a lovely sensitivity of spirit. But no. At this point in his life, it seems as though Joseph, the man of God, has gone off the boil, if I can put it as crudely as that. His love for God's gone cold. Maybe it's the years in in Pharaoh's service that have taken their toll. Maybe after all these years, all the power at his disposal has finally had its effect. We said a few weeks ago that power corrupts complete. Power corrupts completely. Well, here's Joseph at the height of his powers. And maybe he's just become complacent thinking that he can rest on his laurels. Joseph falls badly. I think it's a a wonderful dynamic in the Bible, how honest it is about even its its best heroes. I'm thinking here as well of, of David. David, the man after God's own heart. So much of his life lived wonderfully for God, but then when he's at the very height of his powers, he falls into sin with Bathsheba. I want to think with you about that for a second. Whenever we think about how we, we need to be on our guard against temptation, I suspect that we normally think about that whenever we know we're under attack. 
at those moments where it's very obvious that, that things are going badly or difficult in our lives, that circumstances are against us. And of course those are good times to be focusing on, on God's protection when we're under attack. But I wonder how prayerful we are and attentive we are when things are going really, really well. When we're doing as well as we've ever done, when we feel like we're on top of our game, when we're at the height of our powers, how attentive are we in those moments to our life with God? Friends, I think and I wonder sometimes, are those not the most dangerous moments of all? Those where everything seems to be going well, where everyone's commending us, where, where nothing seems to stand against us. Friends, I don't think we can presume on, on God's grace in our lives yesterday or a year ago. We need to keep fresh every day and often new experiences of God's closeness and His presence. We want to avoid what happened to Joseph happening to us, our growing cold, our going off the boil. If these middle verses of chapter 47 have shown Joseph in a bad light, I think the final verses, beginning at verse 28, show what a man of God, old Jacob, has become. And with this we close. We learn that he lived in Egypt for another 17 years to a ripe old age of 147. And then we read, when the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and he said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you'll show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. He makes Joseph swear that he'll do it. And then he worships God. You see what this is here? This is an old man at the end of his life, absolutely crystal clear about what's important to him at the very last step of his journey. He's a choice here. He's come and he's lived for 17 years in great prosperity in Egypt. He had just escaped a famine. He had come from having nothing to once again having everything. He's the typical affluent retiree. He is the person who's finished life with all of God's blessings around him. And do you see what he says? He says, Joseph, son, these blessings of Egypt, they've been great. Thanks for your hand in, in providing them for us. These 17 years, you've looked after us wonderfully. But they don't mean a thing to me compared to the promises of God. I'm not an Egypt person. Joseph, I'm a Canaan person. No matter how much stuff I have, no matter how much wealth 
we've accumulated here in Goshen. I know where my heart lies. I know what kind of a man I am. I'm a Canaan man. It's the promised land for me. It's the place of God. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I wonder when my time comes, will I have this perspective? Will I finish my life clinging on to absolutely nothing of of the material and the tangible that will surround me at that point? And will I have a crystal clear vision of the place where I'm going and a desire for nothing else? I wonder will I have that? I don't know because I'm only 35. but I pray that I will. I wonder when you have it. I wonder, do you? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful conclusion of the life of Jacob that we've reflected on here this evening. Thank you for the ways in which you transformed the cheat, Jacob, into Israel, the one who struggles with you and walks with you. Lord, we thank you for the way in which you changed this man who was selfish an acquisitive who wanted nothing more than to surround himself with possessions. You changed him into a man who could say, Lord, thank you for your possessions, but I leave them here. I want to be in your promised land. Lord, could you create in each one of us that same disinterest, disregard in the tangible blessings that the material that you give us thank you for them but lord may they only ever be a platform of praise for us a place that help us to see even more clearly our love for you and desire for you make us like old jacob people who say lord this world is not my home i'm just passing through Lord, give us that wonderful, crystal clear vision of a life with you now and with you in eternity.